0: life messages God has given me usually come out in worship songs or drama or, you know, something that way. But So I came, and like a mother, and I have two sons here who can tell you, sometimes you just want to impart everything to your child in one lecture, <laughs> and you didn't even want it to be a lecture, but you just want them to get everything, and so you, you give them nothing because... There's like Jesus, you know, with every person he came across, there is that one thing he knew to touch in their life, he knew to speak to in their life. And so I came in afterward, I heard someone say, Well, all I all I really remember is that grace is not mercy. And I thought, well, okay, that's a good starting place. <laughs> it's, it's a good starting place. But um I so this time um Stephanie asked if I wanted to come back, and I thought, okay, I, I would like to. Um, I'd like to try again to impart <laughs> what changed my life so radically 20-some years ago. And then Mark and Linda called after that and said, you know, we're going to be there. Can we come? Can we stay with you? And, of course, we said yes, because unless, you know, it would have to be an earthquake or something to say no. But, but then um, I was like, ding, because Mark is the man who came to our church, it was New Covenant at the time, um, and preached about grace, and the light came on, and it changed my life forever, forever. It was this man. I'll let him tell you, we we don't even know how we're going to do this, so I'm just going to intro him, I think. I'll let him tell you how God downloaded this message in his life very dramatically. And I just, I was ready when he came. I was ready, you know? We can hear the same message two years earlier or five years earlier. And you maybe you're, honestly, I think a lot of times you're just not desperate enough. You just haven't seen your weakness and your loss clearly enough, you never felt it enough, but I was desperate, and it changed my life. So I I wanted to start by saying something kind of for you, Stephanie, the Lord just highlighted this scripture, but really for the body, and it really is leading into so many things, so many things that have been said this morning, it's like we all got together and said, how can we, how can we intro Mark well, and the Holy Spirit did it. So, but um, there's a scripture in Ephesians. Ephesians 3 is one of my life scriptures, and I usually just dwell on the love part, you know, knowing the unknowable, knowing the love, and um, that was so good this morning. I, I, it's hard to step out of the place we were just in, but at the beginning of that, that chapter is more what I was um, hearing from before I came here, and it's... Um, the part where he talks about Paul's talking about that there is a time when Christ came to and, and it was time to explain this mysterious plan God had had for generations and that the time had come and God the creator of all things had kept this secret but then the time came, and Jesus came, and for this great mystery to be revealed. And he doesn't stop and explain it, and Mark can explain that better than I can. But it says God's purpose in all this was to use the church, the ecclesia, the church, to display his wisdom, you know, this great, massive uh, variety, multifaceted, you know, the different translations say it different ways, but, but this rich diversity of his heart, his wisdom, his love, um, says to the Gentiles, which really means to the nations, so that we rock the unseen world, that we display something to the rulers, of darkness that rocks it forever and undoes it. But it comes through this multifaceted, you know, we all bring something, we all have life messages, we all have things that we've been graced to bring. But um, we become a symphony. You know, I think a lot in musical terms. It becomes a symphony of who God is. And and, um, it's a symphony of that's multicultural, that's multi-generational and and what you're doing and what God is he's doing it across the world is helping us, shaking us so that we have the humility to hear one another's messages. Amen and And then we will rock the darkness once for all. Yeah. So, yes. So I, I have a light, one, of, one of my life messages since meeting Mark, hearing Mark, hearing the Holy Spirit through Mark is a message of the true nature of new covenant grace. And so I'm just going to give my testimony and I'm going to step aside. Because this man has this very unique anointing to bring that message in a way that I can't. Um, I could write a song, and we have written a few songs after some of his meetings. Yeah. But I can't preach it the way Mark does. So we all have life messages. Most of them we've suffered to have them, right? We suffered most of our own stupidity and mistakes and weakness and loss And then God breaks through with truth and begins to transform us. And then we just want the whole world to know, and it becomes a life message, right? And then if it's really a life message, it will be followed by persecution, by testing, right? It's just reality. It's just reality. Yep. You might, yep, that's all I'm going to (laughs) say. So, so anyway, I, I wanted to just kind of enter into it differently than last time and speak about um, fear and anxiety and kind of bring that to the place where grace entered, you know, the revelation came. But, but my whole life as a little child, I struggled with extreme anxiety. And, and you know, there were like three phases in my life, and I'll just be really quick. One, I would call the first one um, maybe just innocent devotion to the Lord. Like, I can't remember a time that I didn't love him. I just can't. I wrote my first worship song in second grade and sang it in my church, you know? I loved him in this pure way, this innocent way. But I was so anxious, and I didn't even have a name for that. I, um, there, I'm not going to go into all the reasons, family situations, mental health situations, but I was just anxious and it was normal to me. If you'd asked me if I was nervous, I I wouldn't even have said yes, it was just I lived ramped way up all the time. And then I would say during that time there was a shame environment that just kind of stoked that and stoked it so that all I wanted to do was make the people in my life happy with me. You know, I will tell you it's a terrible way to live. I'd like to go back and just raise you know what, a little bit as a little kid, (laughs) to say, let's find out who really loves me. Let's find out who really knows Jesus, (laughs) you know? But um, then I would call maybe the second phase, starting around middle school, loss of innocence. Like, Like, you start to realize you're a sinner because sin becomes very personal and specific. You know, like you're starting to emerge sexually and you're starting to emerge like into some of your giftings and friends start betraying each other and being meaner. And, you know, you just start recognizing in you specific sin. And if you don't have someone to process that um, out of God's heart and if you live in an environment of a lot of shame, um, it was a lot. It was a like I, I really went into a depression that didn't that lasted a lot of my life. And again, like people who are depressed, especially kids who can't process it, you don't know it. You still look kind of normal a lot of the time, but it was dark inside. So through high school, into college, um, through high school, like I was involved in all the creative arts. That is where I dwell. That is where I, you know, I. Express God's heart best, and I loved him. I loved him. I loved him. Um, I was in a Lutheran church. I played organ starting at twelve years old, and I, I played fun little things that Lutherans don't usually play on the organ. And, you know, it's like like there's something in me that just wanted kind to of bust out for him, you know. And um, but but I remember my Lutheran pastor. Like, during that time, when it's confusing, and it was when drugs were hitting the high school and the sexual revolution and hippies and, you know, marijuana hit... My friends started... Some of them, not my close friends, but, you know, some people I knew well started smoking marijuana. You watch the society kind of take a nosedive. And you can't, you know, you can't make sense out of it all. And, And you innocently are sucked into the values around you, you know? And so... I remember my Lutheran pastor one day when I was in high school saying, because Lutherans talk a lot about law and grace, but saying, I preach about grace? Oh, he was talking about dancing, like modern teenage dancing. And it really, really shocked me, because didn't, we didn't talk about anything like that in Lutheran church. But he was talking about how immoral it was and how sexual it was, and he said, I preach grace, but I think I need to preach more law around here. It just like it was just a confusing mix of law has a place, grace has a place. What, how do they? You know, there wasn't anything to land on, in that time of feeling so lost in myself and ashamed of my sins. I just had such a tender conscience, and so, so what I did is when I went into college. I decided that I would lay down everything that was my identity, and that was my sacrifice. I left behind the arts. I majored in the one thing I don't love, science. I went, I did. I love it. It makes me worship God, but imagine doing four years studying your least favorite subject, okay? It was a dark time. It was a dark time. I did pre-med. You know, I always wanted to see people healed. I took the MedCats. I was applying to medical schools. I was in the darkest depression. You know, I would completely lost who God had made me to be. And I didn't know. I loved him. I didn't know what to do. At that point, I, I entered the charismatic world. I was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I needed more discipling in how to stay filled with him. And really walk with him, but uh, but things came alive. The word came alive. I I started to hear him. I started to realize I had a prophetic gifting, even though I didn't know exactly how to use it. But uh, but I still I still stayed out of the arts. He spoke to me not to go to medical school. Um, I laid that down. So now everything's laid down. I'm a yeah, really. I'm a nothing. Does anybody relate to a time in their life? Yes, when they gave up their very identity, thinking it would please God, you know? And um, so, yes. Oh, yeah. so, so anyway, on we went, um, married. I laid it down so completely. When I married my husband, he did not even know I was a musician. I didn't even tell the man I was making a covenant with. What were the things in my heart? And, um, and so, so. even in a charismatic world, as a worshiper, my whole life I'd worship God. I loved to worship him. I was a worshiper. You, you know, and you think, it was almost taught that if you just did that, if you worshipped, everything would get better. So, I still... it's as if I had discovered the power of the Holy Spirit in some ways, and the love of God, like I just knew his love, but the sound mind was missing. Thinking right about who God was and how he felt about me. All I knew was to keep laying my life down. I would lay my life down for my husband, because I believed in his gifts, you know. I just kept, Laying my life down. And the depression would start to come back so deeply. And yet I knew the Holy Spirit. I unfailingly worshipped God, you know. I, and I, I would have, I guess when, with, when I entered into the charismatic world, I was so, I, I encountered his mercy. Like that became vivid to me. For the first time, I knew I didn't have to ask him over and over and over again to save me, you know. And I would have lived my life. Grateful for his mercy. I would have spent my life thanking him for his mercy, for his forgiveness, that my sins were washed away, that I could be in his family, that I could spend eternity with him, but I still had lost my identity in him. And so, even the mercy that I was experiencing, it was shrouded by regret and shame, and disappointment, and fear, and more anxiety, you know, you couldn't, there's still something in you that you were earning, you were earning, you were earning, you you know, so anyway, Mark came, and I was so, it was the time of the Toronto outpouring, and, and just things were just shaking in me, like I knew, I knew, like you, sometimes you just know he's coming. As desperate you are, you know he's coming. So Mark came, and I, I was desperate for this message, and it turned my life upside down. For the first time, I understood what grace really was. I understood the power. I don't want to do much preaching, because I want you to tell, it, I understood the power to be transformed. Like what Carrington talked about, the butterfly, you know? Like undeserved transforming power. Not just undeserved forgiveness, but undeserved transforming power. And it started a whole new journey. A whole new journey. It was a revelation. It was a revelation, and it became a life message for me. It changed or began to change the way I think. Power and love and sound thinking about a real God who really loves us, who is usually so much more than we know here. Right? There's more. Just like you were singing, there's always more. But... But now I know there's more, and now I know I'm not earning the more. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. So, at any rate, Mark came. Um, It has been a journey since then. Um, At every stage of that journey, God has let me bump into people from different places in my past who will say, you are different. Still becoming Different. Still t- being transformed until the day I see him face to face, right? Well, we will fight the fight, but in a different way with truth, with the truth of grace. So that is my introduction. Right. Wow. Thank you. Uh, I, yeah,
1: I mean, you know, we could go now and we've heard the word. I mean, gee whiz, that's uh sheesh, my gosh. Uh, first of all, let me say that um, my mind is just popping because of everything we've been hearing and what she just shared, and I'm thinking, dear Jesus, we, Linda and I, we have to be in Jackson by 6 o'clock, ready to go again. So um, so I got to get done at least by a quarter to six. Um, no, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. Really, really? Really? Yeah, hopefully, yeah, I'll do a Philip deal, you know? Why did that only happen once? I mean, I have right at three million air miles uh, that I've traveled. And oh, to have the gift of saying goodbye and appearing somewhere else, that would be, that would be awesome. Uh, really, really great. And I, I gotta warn you, there's just so much popping off in my mind right now. Um, you is that your daughter? Um, I, I could not, myself, I could not pick a better and yet so simple way to describe new covenant grace, because the uh, the word that the apostles used to define new covenant grace is the Greek word metamorphos, and it is exactly what you said that this this uh, caterpillar goes into a cocoon and turns into. Mush, you said goo, that's exactly right. Loses everything of itself and then completely out of its own effort. There's none. And yet, mysteriously, this transformation begins. And then this beautiful butterfly uh, comes out and can take absolutely no credit could never say to another caterpillar, "I worked harder than you." Right, right. Uh, and so, I mean, you can tell already. You know, I've got several messages going off in my head. In fact, I, we were at a church years ago, and I said the same thing. I said, "You know, I just feel so full. I'm not sure where to start." And somebody called out in the back, and said, "Near the end." So, <laughs> so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to do that. Okay. Very quick, just because I think it's important that, that you know, if somebody's going to share the word with us, I, th- I think it is important that we have at least some small idea of their story. Um, I, I'm, I'm always a little hesitant uh, until I know somebody's story. And if, if I know their journey a little bit, um, then uh, somewhere or another my mind is more open to whatever they're going to say. If they've paid a price, like you said, um, I'm, an, I'm probably going to pay more attention. Does that make sense? I, um, and so, in, in what Janine was saying, uh, we, we, we showed up um, at New Covenant 23 years ago now, 1999. Um, and that was a result of Linda and I have been married uh, 50 and a half years. And, yeah, all right, thanks. Yeah, yeah. My, my kids and grandkids applaud, too. They're really, really grateful that uh, that we broke something important in our family line. Uh, my two parents, Linda's two parents, together, well, not together, but if you added them all up, 11 divorces and remarriages. So we've got stepbrothers and stepsisters we'd never meet. We don't know them, never will. Uh, you know, it's just, and so we were two little hippie kids. We radically came to Jesus at the very beginning of what, turned out to be called the Jesus Movement. Uh, in fact, our kids wrote a song for us at our 50th wedding anniversary. They're all very musical. And uh, the first line is, two young, G- two young Jesus freaks out in the middle of an open field with some of their friends said, I do. And that's that's the story of our life. And um, almost right away, well, I, I could play the guitar and sing. I'd been in a band when Jesus chased me down. You, you remember the... the um, Remember the footprints in the sand? See, I'm getting so many things about, you know. And um, no doubt you've seen the, the, the meme or the little cartoon that, you know, Jesus says to the guy, the guy says, you know, why were there only, you know, there were two sets of footprints? What's that all about? Well, that's when I was walking along beside you. And then Jesus says, now that other place where there's one set of footprints and a long drag mark, that's where I was lovingly dragging you. Um, in, into my purpose for you, the abundant life that I have for you. Um, but we came to Jesus, and because I, in the, in the very beginning, in, in 67, I was the only one that had a Bible. Uh, my grandfather had given it to me, uh, but I could play guitar. So we didn't know any Christian songs. So the first thing we did was we, we turned House of the Rising Sun into Amazing Grace. It it works. It does. It really does work. So we did several things like that. And so I was kind of automatically the leader and, and we, our band would travel around and sing in parks and then a Christian coffee house would pop up and then they needed some kind of help or oversight. And so we started doing that. And then people started getting married and having babies and had to cut their hair to get a good job. And so all this is going on and, and these coffee houses turned into churches. And so they're just naturally looking to me and, and uh, you know, kind of as the de facto leader, whatever that meant, and then those things turned into churches, and we found ourselves, you know, for 25 years, pastoring what would be referred to as a typical property-owning Sunday morning church. And by the end of that 25 years, I was utterly and completely burned out because I had gone from being a no, absolutely nothing except wow, the love of Jesus is better than getting high on drugs. This is the high. This is awesome. Wow. And then when you have to build buildings and keep raising money to keep the whole thing going. And and, and for me, it just became more and more about I got to produce. I got to keep producing so people keep coming. And I've got to have better programs so more people will come but wait a minute, that's gonna take a lot more money, and so I gotta do this, and I gotta do that. And my whole relationship with God over the years became, God, you are demanding more than I can give you. And we had a series um, of things that happened in 1993, sudden deaths and and sudden betrayals of lifetime friends, and it just, it, it crushed me, and so for the first time, in 25 years, I said, we got to take a year off. I'm, I'm, I'm beat up. Well, that year turned into five years of, of ever growing, ever crushing depression. Now I, you know, I think I came out of the womb with a positive attitude. I'm a, you know, I was always one of those positive thinking guys, you know? Um, So depression, I mean, look, my pastoral counseling for people who were caught in depression was, well, quit it. You know, that, I, that sounded good to me, you know. You know, grab your bootstraps and pull yourself up. Who do you think you are? I mean, just. So I'm in the midst of this, and, and uh, uh, of course, I, you know, back in those days, I certainly, um, along with my pretty strong OCD, uh, my ADDDDDD, uh, just you know, was really just really cranking up, and of course, but now I'm doing it for Jesus, so now it's holy. Now, now it's good, you know, and I'm driving everybody else nuts, and and uh, you know they're never doing enough, you know, and my wife is never doing enough, you know, and she's still with me. I mean, that there you go. There that, you talk about love. <laughs> yeah, I gave her every reason to leave, and she just won't go. You know, it's, yeah. So um, anyway, this this depression just began to take away every sense I had of joy and, and so I'd gone from this big pendulum swing and uh, we end up in St. Louis and because we own a business there and or owned a business there and uh, and so our kids are there and but they, now they're growing up and our son becomes a uh, youth pastor at this mega church and and we're hiding out or I'm hiding out Linda's trying to urge me down to the front row and I'm staying way way in the back and so we got this and then finally it it just got so bad that I stopped going to church period and for all of 1996 um, I just I couldn't stand it it was too painful and uh, it's very interesting I, obviously I'm taking too much time telling the story but um, I, I I had no doubt that if I would die uh, I would somehow be with him but, I really wanted to die because this was miserable. I mean, this was this was terrible. Now I have to say that on a, on July twelfth of nineteen ninety four, um, going to this charismatic mega church that was clearly charismatic. However, it was very carefully charismatic. You know, we told the worship team, "Don't speak in tongues anywhere near a microphone." Um, you know, wise or not. But anyway, on the on January 12th, Sunday morning, for the first service of three, our senior pastor got up to welcome the people and uh, began to shake and fell over. Um, we thought he was having a heart attack, but in fact he was overwhelmed by the presence of God and everything suddenly went berserk. But he was still on the floor, so nobody was willing to stop it. Uh, and people just started falling out and and, and it was it was utterly bizarre uh, and then of course it really became bizarre when two hours later the second service people came in and none of the first service people had left and uh, people started walking in the, the, the front doors and falling on the floor, which never ever, ever happened in that church. and then of course two hours later the third sir I mean it just and it became meetings every night and that went on for a few years and and it seemed like, it's not true, but it seemed to me that the truth was everybody was having divine life-changing life encounters except me. And I got in every prayer line and nothing happened. Some of you may have heard of Rodney Howard Brown. He started coming. And, uh, and after a while, in his big-barreled South African way, he said, joking, hey, Mark, would you not get in the prayer line tonight? You're really making me look bad. Um, <clears throat> now, he was making a joke, but, but I was desperate. I mean, and nothing happened. And so that went on for three years. And that third year, I just couldn't go back. I, I just couldn't. Now, you know, our, our youngest daughter, Amanda, who, when all this began, was eight years old, nine years old. We would come into the service, and halfway through worship, she'd be on the floor laughing her head off, speaking in tongues, having a ball. I'm looking down at her, and I say, God, you really, you're really wasting something. You know what I could do if I got that? I mean, come on, you just really had bad aim. And, uh, but this just got, and I just, I couldn't endure it. I just, I couldn't, or I wouldn't, but I just, so I just stopped. And, um, for a year and uh, linda took it and was very loving and gracious and and then after a year um she said hey you know they're doing a special thing on a thursday night you haven't seen the pastor for a long time and what do you think about would you go with me and so i said sure because i've really never told him goodbye and told him i don't blame him he knew my story and so we went that night and um Yeah, and the next thing I knew, it was 1 o'clock in the morning, and I was incapacitated, and for the next 17 days, I couldn't work, I couldn't drive, and most of the time, I couldn't talk. Now, I'm not using that as an example. I've had too many people say, oh, pray for me that I'll have a Damascus Road experience. Well, okay, first you have to become a high-level Pharisee and then kill a lot of Christians, and then, you know, know, don't, don't do that. Uh, Paul said, if we compare ourselves among ourselves, we ain't smart. And, uh, you know, sadly, anytime there's a fresh wave that comes, people react to it differently. uh, And then we end up sometimes comparing reactions as if that makes us more spiritual and not wise. But um, I don't have any explanation for what happened other than uh, I had gotten to the point where I perceived myself a Bible scholar uh, only to find out during that 17 days, two and a half weeks, um, that I opened the Bible and said, I, I don't think I've ever read this before. I mean, there's things in here that I, I, I can't imagine that I missed, but I did. So let me give you just an example of what was going on in me. And oh, by the way, um, the first book that I wrote back then, uh, as a result, it's called God's Running a uh, It's It's still the most popular. I don't know what that says. But um, I was better the first time than the other five, six times. Um, But the subtitle is Searching for the Easy and Light Life Jesus Promised. And it was all about Matthew 11, 28. Come to me. And Jesus is talking to Jews now. Come to me, you who are so worn out trying so hard to do it all right so God might be happy with you. But you are utterly worn out. If you will come to me, if you'll just join with me, I'll be the one that carries the yoke because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And laying on the floor night after night in those meetings and then being literally carried out to our car by my son and his other youth group leaders, and laying me in the back seat, and then following his mom home and carrying me into the house. And I just lay on the lazy board recliner all night because our bedroom was on the second floor, and they couldn't get us up there or get me up there. And uh, and, and But in the midst of that, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, this is supposed to be easy and light, but it had never been that for me, at least certainly not after the first couple of years. And so this is what was going over my head. I couldn't. I couldn't speak English most of the time, so it was very difficult for me to communicate. So I just. I didn't do anything but lay around the house, reading my Bible and making notes, and at night going to the service because we were still having services every night, and people were waiting at three thirty, four o'clock for the seven o'clock service. But they were ushering me in early and giving me a seat and by the middle of the first song i'm down on the floor don't remember anything uh, and they're carrying me home but what was going on inside of me was this the word grace just started popping out every time i opened my bible and at the beginning i thought well i know what grace everybody knows what grace is what's the big deal well the big deal for me began to come alive with verses like this and You don't need to turn You might want to write it down. We don't don't have time. But Peter opens his first epistle by saying this, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace of God. Set your hope fully on the grace of God. And then he ends his letter with this, I have written to you briefly encouraging you and testifying to you that this is the true grace. Of God stand firm in it and I'm reading that and I'm thinking Peter knew something that I don't know I mean in the beginning to the end he is saying everything is about this thing called grace and apparently in calling it the true grace of God there was a false grace of God okay and the more I read the more I began to realize for myself that I had grossly, wrongly defined grace because I, like now 25 years later, and many countries and many languages and many sincere Christians, I, like many of them, had just sort of made the assumption that mercy and grace were the same thing. And so I would say, like many people, uh, man I really messed up the other day but 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 God showed me his grace and what I really meant was he didn't zap me with fire you know he didn't hit me with lightning but he was gracious to me forgave me as you know we use the word grace we say we say um, um, in fact I read by you know a top Christian leader not long ago after there was you know some really heartbreaking failures of high profile Christian leaders and he said you know we have to understand that you know, they're just really God's sheep. And so when they fail, we need to show them grace. Well, I would—I used to talk that way. I used to say that. But what I, what I really meant, and I think what he really meant was, we need to show them long-suffering and mercy. And that's good. We need to do that. But it began to dawn on me as I read these over and over and over again, that that's not what the apostles were talking about when they said grace in the new covenant. Now, There's always been grace. Genesis 6-1, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The word grace is used in our English translations over 240 times in the Old Testament, over 140 times in the New Testament. But something clearly changed when Jesus came. Because John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, here I am, not able to communicate with anybody else but God, and I'm saying, whoa, wait a minute, time out. I'm a Bible scholar, I already know that the word grace appears over 240 times in the Old Testament. Why are you saying it came with Jesus? Because on this side of the cross, grace means something very different and what it meant in the Old Testament. So a simple word study will show us that in the Old Testament, mercy and grace mean virtually the same thing. The unearned love of God, the unconditional love of God, the unearned favor of God. So when we come to the New Testament, we have this Greek word, charis, from which we get charismaniac, or or, I'm sorry, (laughs) You, you used it. Yeah, right, right, yeah, yeah. And of course, when we say charismatic, if we were to define, if we were to say that church is charismatic in belief, that church is non-charismatic, basically what we're saying is that church believes in the power of the Holy Spirit alive today, right? We would not be meaning that church believes in the unconditional love of God. That's not what we would mean if we say charismatic. Well, interestingly enough, we're actually now inching in on what the apostles meant when they used the word charis. The literal Greek word charis means, and you can look it up in Strong's Dictionary. Anybody can read it. You don't have to be a scholar. But Dr. Strong translated that Greek word charis by this understanding, the divine influence on the human heart and its reflection outward. and most you know 17th 18th century scholars bible scholars when they would try to describe new covenant grace they would use the image of a prism not prison but prism all right now you know you know what happens with a prism you know you went for a science degree <laughs> even though you hated it um, but you know a prism if if you shine what to our eyes is yellowish or typically white light into a prism, it comes in as one color. Well, white's not really a color, but I understand that. But I mean, my six-year-old granddaughter understands that and corrects me when I say black and white's a color. No, they're not. Okay. Anyway, so this 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 one color light shines into a prism, but as it passes through, it breaks into. All these colors of the spectrum now all those colors were in that white light but in the process of coming in and going through something causes this not just to be beautiful and glorious but to be way more effective than just one color of light and this is what two 300 year ago Bible scholars used to describe the word charis, that it's Jesus, his life, coming into us, and then as it moves through us, it comes out of us as, dare I say, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. Does that sound familiar? So in this process, I'm reading Galatians 5. I've read it I don't know how many hundreds of times, and all of a sudden, I see some words that I had never fully appreciated before. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is, see, I mean, in my mind, every time I read the fruits of the Spirit, what I actually thought as I read it was now the fruit of a Christian who tries really, really hard. But but it's not my fruit. It just comes into me in the life of Jesus by his spirit. And as it passes through me, those those nine things are the nature of Jesus. So when his life comes into us, this mystery, and Paul uses the word mystery 11 times to talk about what they meant by new covenant grace. Christ coming into us by his spirit living in us. I mean, Paul would write to the first or to the Corinthian church, both in the first and second letter, and over and over again he would talk about the sins that are at work among the believers. He wasn't talking about the world; he was talking about them, the believers. And then he would stop and he say, he would say, "Have you forgotten who's living in you?" Paul's solution for carnality was becoming more and more and more aware of who's living in us. That was his solution. Thank God he was not like me. His solution was not, now just quit it. Because he knew they couldn't. I mean, that's just the bottom line. It's the problem with the law. It describes the absolute perfectness of God. And it's intended to show us we can't do it. But God's plan from before the beginning was that he would come and live in us and through us, and we would be metamorphosed. We would be transformed. So definitions really matter. I mean, they really, really, really matter. How we define something is very, very important. Now, you know, traveling around the world, I have frequently made a buffoon of myself for using words that mean something very, very different in some cultures than they did in my culture, right? I mean... You know, and, and just think, the people who live in the UK really think they're speaking English. That, that ain't English. I mean, it's, you know, that's not English. First time I went to, to, to teach at a conference in, uh, in England, um, man, the first person to pick me up said, let me put my luggage, it, well, I'll, I'll take your luggage and put it in the boot. And I thought, dear Lord, how big are your feet that you can put? I got a couple of big bags here. Course, he meant the trunk, and then it got even more confusing when he said, Listen, I need to check under the bonnet. But that's the hood of the car in England, you, you lift the bonnet to put oil in your car. Okay, but then it really freaked me out when he said, You know, we I, that guy's in my way, I'm gonna hoot my hooter. <laughs> Wait a minute, we don't do that in the States. Unless you want to get slapped with a sexual, you know, you, don't, you, know, you just you don't do that. But that's their horn. They don't honk their horn. They hoot their hooter, okay? And, of course, those are funny definitions. I'll give you a very sad one. I'm old enough to remember when President Clinton was being impeached and wanted to argue the point of, well, it all depends on what the meaning of the word is. Is that was his defense and that's sad but there's a way that wrong definition can be deadly like you here um, in st. Louis where we live we have a, a, a large immigrant society or neighborhoods and we have a lot of people from Somalia and they come over and they they work hard And then in the newspaper a few years ago, we read of a horrible, horrible, tragic accident when a Somalian mother took her just a few months old baby to a doctor. Didn't speak hardly any English. The doctor diagnosed it, and though she couldn't understand it, he said, look, I know that the baby's sick, but it's going to be an easy cure. And he gave her a prescription, and she went and got it. And written on the prescription, it said one slash four teaspoons uh, three times a day. She read that. Now, you and I know what that is, right? What is it? A fourth, a quarter teaspoon three times a day. A little bit, three times a day. She read that as 14 and killed her baby. Why? Because she looked at that and defined it differently than what the doctor did. And I've come to believe over the past 25 years of traveling the world and teaching this, that if the devil can succeed in getting us to define new covenant grace, Keras, as the unconditional love of God, we will stay like we are, we will feel miserable, but we'll be hoping that God still loves us. And it's bad definition. Titus 2.11, Paul said, now the grace of God has appeared instructing us and enabling us how to say no to ungodliness. How do we do that? By understanding and then, because we understand it, putting our faith in the power of grace. What is grace? It's the life of Jesus coming into us by his spirit and then beginning the metamorphous job of changing us on the inside. You know why Paul refused, absolutely refused, to give his churches a list of rules on what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act as a Christian? He refused to do it. Because he kept saying, if the love of Jesus is living inside of you, that love will guide you to do the right thing. But if I give you a set of rules, the moment you miss one, you're going to be overcome with fear, shame, and condemnation, right? But, but if you understand that there is a power that has come into you that is greater than you. So let me kind of I mean I could give you so much stuff but and I don't even have any books to try to get you to buy. They're all somewhere else. They're all gone. So go on our website markdrake.org and you can see all that. But 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 this is what Paul meant when he said things like for I have been crucified with Christ. However, I do live. However, it's not really me who's living. It is Christ. Who's living in and through me that's that's it begins to explode in my heart and mind that that's what he's talking about that he's talking about going to a doctor And look I go to doctors I I also pray for healing and I've been healed miraculously after eight years of morphine four times a day because of a severe damage to my neck they told me I had to come off the morphine or I was gonna die from damage to my lungs and my liver and then they said, however, we don't know how to control the pain once you come off the morphine. And I'd been prayed by, I facetiously and jokingly say this, I'd been prayed for by the best because some of them are my buddies and we taught together and they knew how I was suffering and they would graciously pray for me. And I was still in terrible pain, but I thought, well, I don't want to die from pneumonia because I'd had it two, or three times a year for several years because of what's going on. And so I come off the morphine and, I was more shocked than anybody. When I came off all the drugs, I didn't have any pain. And some people will say, well, praise God, you showed your faith by coming off the morphine. No, I didn't. I came off the morphine because I didn't want to die of pneumonia. I mean, come on, let's be real here. But, but if, you, if, if, if I go to a doctor, I do not want to go back to a doctor who mocks me, makes fun, fun of me, slaps me across the face, and says, you're sick because it's your fault. I want to go to a doctor that has some compassion, right? He doesn't know me very well, so it's unearned compassion. But I don't want to go to a doctor who says, oh, Mark, this must be terrible. I feel so badly for you. I'm I'm so sorry. That'll be $150. Uh, Right? I want a doctor who's going to say, Look, I can diagnose what's wrong with you, and it really um, I, I feel really badly that you've got this. There's nothing you can do. You cannot fix yourself. But I got really good news for you. Take this antibiotic twice a day for 10 days, and you'll be fine. Your grandparents would have died of this because penicillin wasn't made yet or antibiotics. But, but, but you, now, you know what I would say? what's been told me, and by sincere people, and especially because we spend so much of our time with pastors and leaders, by sincere leaders. After I'd get done speaking about this, they'd say, but that's too simple. Okay, how simple is it to have a life-threatening infection, go to the doctor, and the doctor says, take these tablets three times a day for 10 days? And I say, that's too simple. Well, I have to believe that what's in that container is going to do something inside of me that I cannot possibly do for myself. Now, if I mistakenly think that that's aspirin, and I know I've got a raging infection, I'm not going to take it because I don't have any faith that it's going to help me. But the problem is I've misdiagnosed or I misdefined what's in that bottle. Does this make any sense? I've misdefined. So if I think that mercy and grace are simply the same thing, then when I struggle with arrows of carnality in my life, which we all do, and on some level we all will, until we see him face to face. John says, I do not know what we're going to be, but this much I know. When we see him, we shall be made completely like him. It ain't going to happen in this life. It's always going to be a journey. So if I think grace and mercy are the same thing, it's God God loves me, God loves me. So here I am, now I'm struggling with some addiction that's got a hold of my life, right? Oh, well, at least God loves me. But I've got no faith that something is going to happen inside of me that I cannot do for myself. That is the nature of God's grace in the new covenant. It is power. Mercy is passive. You do not have to do anything to receive the mercy of God. He's going to have mercy on you because he loves the whole world. But grace is power. It's not my power. And we know just from the way we use the word charismatic. We're not saying, oh yeah, those that charismatic church. Those people, they're all, they all got their own power going. We know that it's the power of the Holy Spirit, and it's not just the power of the Holy Spirit somewhere in the sky, it's the power of the Holy Spirit inside of human beings doing something that only God can do. We already know that. That is the very definition of new covenant grace. And I think it's important in this day and age, and this is just my opinion, but I think it's important because of misdefinition or bad definitions and misunderstanding that that we we kind of train ourselves when we talk about that, we say new covenant grace. Because new covenant grace is entirely different than old covenant grace. And when it says Jesus brought grace and truth, he brought something different. And ultimately what he brought was his own life by the Spirit and the day of Pentecost coming into human beings, doing things inside of them that they cannot possibly do this. Now, I'm not talking about raising the dead, healing the sick. That's also a part of the work of the Holy Spirit. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about admitting weakness and failure in areas of my life. And, well, let me kind of wrap it all up by saying this. Our daughter, who uh, just turned 52, we have, we have three kids. We have 10 grandchildren from 35 down to one. Dear Jesus, I mean, they are just everywhere, and they're old. Man, oh, my gosh. Our our oldest daughter, our oldest child, Lori, 52 years old now, became addicted back when she was 14, 15. When she was 15, she'd been running away on pastoring a church. It's embarrassing, and I was more worried about my pride than my own daughter sometimes. It's the truth started running away. One day, she just didn't come back, and we couldn't find her. Before she turned 16, she called us several states away and said, Dad, I'm pregnant. I need you to send me money. It's a big, long story. I'm not going to send you money, but I'll fly out and get you. No, 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 I'm not going to live with you. Okay, well, I'll pay to have you go someplace. I got friends, and, and, and you can live there. They'll take care of you and take care of you and the baby. No, send me money. Honey, I, I'm not going to do it. I know what you're going to do with the money, and it's not going to be take care of the baby. Finally, she called me one day, and she said, okay, I've made an appointment for an abortion tomorrow. Either send me money today, or it'll be your fault that I kill this baby. And I said, baby, I love you so much. But you know what? I have all the confidence in the world that if you kill that little baby tomorrow, God will eternally take care of the soul and spirit of that baby. I'm absolutely confident. It's you I'm concerned with right now, but you are not going to guilt me into sending you money when every time I've done it, I know what you did with it. I'm just, I'm not going to do it. Well, I hate your guts and I'm going to kill this baby. Boom. I don't hear anything. A few months go by. I'm preaching at a conference, sound asleep up in the penthouse that they rented for me. I don't know who they thought I was. And I love what you said, by the way, about titles. We don't say plumber Bob, but we say Bob is a really good plumber. God help us. Jesus said, do not use titles. I mean, he just did. And I don't know why that's so hard for my friends sometimes to understand. Maybe I make it too simple. I'm always being accused, lovingly I hope, of making stuff too simple. That's me. I just, but when I realized that in first century Rome, 95% of those human beings could not read. How simple did they have to make these letters? Buy my latest book, Simple Bible, and you'll get that a little bit better, but I don't have you with me to sell. So there you go. Markdrake.org. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get a phone call at 3 o'clock in the morning, and there's this doctor. Hello, I'm Dr. So-and-so, and and I hear this screaming in the background, and he says, your daughter Lori is here, and I got to deliver this baby, but she refuses to let me deliver this baby until you pray for her. Well, for the next 23, 24 years, she is terribly addicted. The guy who married her, sent from God, she would disappear, she'd she'd do fine for three weeks, four weeks, then she'd disappear for three or four days. Drugs, alcohol, gone, he'd take care of the babies, she'd come back home, he'd take her back, this happened again and again and again and again and again. And then she got arrested when she was 40. The judge said to her, I can either put you in county jail for nine months or you can go to a 12-step program seven days a week for a solid year and prove to me every week that you've done it every day and not miss a day or you're going to jail. Which do you want? And she said, I'll go to the 12-step program. She's 40 years old. She's an English major. She edited a couple of my books about grace. Two weeks after she was in this program, she calls me on the phone. And the moment I heard her voice, I knew something wonderful had changed, but I didn't know what it was. And she told me that she'd been arrested and da-da-da and all that. And she said, and Dad, I picked out an AA group. And surprise, surprise, 90% of the people in that group love Jesus and their higher power is Jesus. And I've been listening for two weeks. People get up and say, hi, my name is Mark and I'm an alcoholic and I know I cannot change myself, but I believe that him living inside of me can do for me what I cannot do for myself. And Lori said, dad, I'm understanding the grace of God. She could have just as easily ended up dead along the highway. I know that, and I don't ever tell this story, and I don't ever want people to think somehow we were so wonderful parents or we prayed so hard or we did something. That's not what caused this to happen. She had a very practical example for 14 days of what, The Bible teaches we ought to be doing as Christians, getting together and say, hi, I'm Mark, and I'm struggling with this, this character issue. And I can't change myself. I've tried. I've promised God. How many know what it means to be a member of the promise makers, not the promise keepers? The promise makers, right? Oh, God, I know I've done this before, but you know what? This is the last time. Okay, I realize that the last time I did this and came to you, I told you then that was the last time. But I've had a revelation since then. That was the next to the last time because this is the last time. And I promise you, this time. I'm. And you know what the Apostle Paul would say? Stop it. Stop promising God and begin to read about his promises to you. Because in renewing your mind, you will begin to believe that there is someone living inside of you who will begin to do for you what you cannot possibly do for yourself. And the apostles called this new covenant grace. Transforming grace. So Paul ends his first letter to the Corinthian church and he says, all that I have become everything that I've become in Christ is directly due to the grace of God at work in me. He said, our confidence is not from ourselves, but our confidence is from the transforming grace of God. So my kids and grandkids are growing up understanding that when they read the word grace in the Bible, that they should some way, in the New Testament, they should some way, somehow, insert this rather long definition. For it was by the power of Christ's life living in me and through me that I have become what I am now. The power of Christ's life living in me and through me. I mean... Just before Jesus was arrested, beaten, and ultimately crucified, setting at what we call the Last Supper, he said to those guys who were still not getting it, and you know what? That was okay. Because he knew what the end of their story would be. And he never one time said, you're not my guys anymore. (laughs) Do you know there's actually a place in the four Gospels where Jesus said, I am the bread of life come down from heaven And it is recorded in our Bible that one disciple turned to another one and said, is he trying to tell us we forgot to bring lunch? It's in the Bible. And when I read that kind of stuff, I go, oh, thank you, Jesus, for putting that in the Bible. There's hope for me. Right? I still get to be your guy, even though I don't understand what's going on. That's okay, that's okay. Your story's not over yet, Mark. Your this is a journey. This is not an arrival. It's not a destination. The arrival will be when we see him face to face, either through natural death now or if we're alive when he returns. When we see him, the transformation will be made complete. So number one, stop feeling guilty about areas where you have not yet been transformed because this is a journey you have not yet arrived Number two, start being completely honest with God. Yes, I did that. It was me. My wife's not to blame, although I used to try to do that. I am to blame. That's okay. But the beauty of the new covenant and what we're learning about, one, the finished work of Jesus, and two, the amazing love of God that is without end is that we can quickly take the blame for our carnality without any shame it is shame that causes us to draw back from god it's not blame it's not saying you know what the word confess means if you got arrested for a crime and you really did it and you confessed what would you do you wouldn't say oh mr officer i will never do that again that's not confession confession is i did it it was me my fault i did it that's what god wants from us when we recognize something that's not like Jesus, we need to say, yes, I did that. That's right. That's me trusting my best effort, and it will always fail. So would you ignite more grace in my life? Would you renew my mind so that I can put my faith more firmly? Peter says, as he ends his first letter, oh, the first letter we have record of, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it because this is how we are becoming. We're the gooey, messed up caterpillars who are in the process of metamorphosis. That's who we are. And for the last 12 years, my daughter understands she's a a gooey, carnal caterpillar who is being metamorphosed by a power so far beyond her. But in her, doing what she cannot do for herself. And every once in a while, a little bit of beautiful wing Pops out. <laughs> oh gosh, I got to get in the car and go. I'm so sorry. Um, thank you so much. I mean, I've gone way. Oh, I understand that. Forgive me. You know, you have to forgive me. If you're a Christian, you have to, yeah. anyway. I, um, I just. I, the last thing I want to say is, um, Dave and Janine and 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 their children, um, very quickly, 23 years ago, became. Lifelong friends for us. And they have refreshed us and they have loved us. And and we've been on this journey together. And we're able to be honest with one another. And, you know, golly, I look back and I think, you know what? Those years that I was pastoring local churches, I did a real good job of getting people to be better hypocrites. Because it finally ended up, they were afraid to be honest. Well, come on, you know. I mean, if somebody on staff is honest about lust or anger or they get fired. I mean, it's just kind of, and I'm not saying everywhere. I'm making a broad generality, but, you know. And we're hearing about these high-profile leaders who are morally falling. I will guarantee you that a large number of those men and women got painted in a corner where they felt they could not be honest with anybody. And it ate their lunch. It ain't because they don't love Jesus. I'll just tell you that right now. That's not why. Okay, I got to shut up. Lord Jesus, you've been so good to us in giving us each personal and continuing revelation about how much you love us and that your love is without end and that your love is not dependent on our behavior. You've been doing that for all of us Some of us for years and years, and we're so grateful for that. But we don't want to stay like we are. And we've learned that our promises to you will almost always be broken by us. So, Lord, help us to begin to renew our minds again and again and again and again with the reality of who's living in us and who longs to live through us. May we remind ourselves that when we see a flash of that, we must take no credit for this is all you. And there will come a day, Lord, when everyone who has been born to your father will bow before his throne and say, all honor, glory, and credit goes to you. For whatever we have become, you have made us that. Thank you. Amen. Thank you
0: for listening today. Take a moment and ask Holy Spirit what He wants you to do with what you've learned. And remember, with God, all things are
1: possible. So keep dreaming, keep praying, and simply obey, because God is good, and He has good plans for you.
0: You can subscribe to our blogs, learn about our speakers, and even hear from one of our team members how you can take part in transforming a city, your city with Christ. There's no time like the present. Visit ShekinahOnline.com. If this doesn't excite you, watch for our new and God-inspired product line, a newly released book by Stephanie Butler, more testimonies from our listeners like you, working to bring unity in cities across the world. If you feel led to support our podcast, you may do so on our Shekinah.com website. Or if you would like to support us monthly, there is a link labeled listener support on every podcast. Until next time, we thank you. We love you. Have a blessed day.